Well, if you've got your Bible, make your way to Ephesians chapter 3. Uh, Ephesians chapter 3 is where we're going to spend our time this morning. Now, uh, up to this point in the letter to the Ephesians, Paul has just been laying out the beauties and the glories of the gospel, of how God, through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, has forgiven us of all of our sins, has brought us from death to life, has uh, reconciled us back to himself and back to one another. And in chapters 4 through 6, Paul is going to shift and begin to talk more about what it looks like to live out this new life that God has recreated in us through the gospel. But before he does that, he ends this first half of his letter to the Ephesians with a prayer for them uh, and for us. And he does that because it's, it's not just enough for us to be able to know the truths of the gospel intellectually. It's not just enough for us to be able to mark down the right answer on the test. God uh, wants us to experience these realities. He wants the truth of the gospel to come alive to us. He wants us to know him uh, in a deep and experiential way. And if we're going to do this and we're going to live out this new life that God has recreated us for, we, we need more than our own best efforts. We need God's help. And so Paul is praying for this. This passage is like a hinge between uh, the first half and the back half of the book of Ephesians, showing us where the power to embrace the truth of the gospel and where the power to live out this new life comes from. It comes from God through prayer. And so Let's look at this passage together, Ephesians chapter 3, uh, starting in verse 14, and we're going to read through the end of the chapter. Starting in verse 14, God's Word speaks to us like this. It says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray again for God's help on our time together. Father, as we come to your word now, would you speak to us? Would you give us ears to hear? Would you give us hearts to believe and know? Would you, would these not just be words on a page, would you do what you have promised to do here, what Paul has prayed that you would do here, that you would strengthen us with power in our inner being, that we might know and grasp just how much you love us. God, please do this in our hearts. Paul asked for it, we're asking for it, because we can't engineer it, we can't drum it up on our own, we can't make ourselves love you more, but God, you can do this. You're able to do far more abundantly than all that we can ask or think, and so would you do that even in this moment as we hear your word? Would you make your gospel come alive in our hearts? I pray that you would. In your name, amen. And so the first thing we see here uh, in the text is that we should pray that God would make the gospel real to us. 
Uh, Paul begins this passage with, for this reason, and uh, he does that, I think he does that for two reasons. He's got two for this reasons, if you will. Uh, If you look back up at verse 1 of chapter 3, he begins the chapter with the exact same phrase. And so it could be uh, that that he's coming back to the thought he started in verse 1, and the reason he's praying is everything he's laid out in the first two chapters about what the gospel is and what the gospel does. Or it could be that Paul is praying in light of what he talked about in the first 13 verses of Ephesians chapter 3, where he further laid out the mystery of the gospel, that Gentiles are included in the promise, that they're made members of the same body, that God displays his wisdom through the church as Jew and Gentile worship together in the same local church. And again, I I think it's a little bit of both. One, Paul's praying because the supernatural unity that God has created in the gospel takes supernatural power to live it out. God has created supernatural unity in the gospel. This is why Ephesians 3 says that God displays his wisdom to the angels and heavenly beings through the local church because God takes those who are formerly hostile and opposed to one another or indifferent towards one another And he saves them and he unites them together in Jesus. He creates one new man in place of the two and he puts them in the same local church to live it out. That's the reality the gospel creates. We as the local church do not have to create unity. God has already made us one in the gospel. What we as the local church have to do is live into that unity, reflect that unity, and display that unity as we live out our new lives in Jesus together as a local church. And it takes God's power to do that. It takes God's power to show the world that people who have no earthly reason to have a relationship with one another really do have a relationship with one another where we are committed to one another and we love one another and we serve and sacrifice and pray for and care for one another because of what Jesus has done for us. We are so naturally selfish that if we're going to live into this and have relationship with people that we wouldn't naturally click with, that we wouldn't naturally be friends with, that we wouldn't naturally spend time with if Jesus had not risen from the dead. We need God's help and God's power. And so Paul is praying for it. And then two, Paul is praying that the gospel truths he's laid out in the first two chapters would be experienced by the Ephesian church because that's where the power to love others and live out this new life comes from. This is what Paul's asking for as you go on in the prayer. Just like his prayer in chapter 1, Paul uh, lays out the main thing he's praying for at the beginning of his prayer, and then he gives explanations and descriptions and illustrations of what that means and what that looks like as you go on throughout the prayer. He kind of builds it out like stair steps. And so we get the main thing that he's praying for in verse 16, that God, according to the riches of his glory, would grant us to be strengthened with power in our inner beings through the Holy Spirit. That's what Paul is praying for, that we would be strengthened with power in our inner being. Now, what does that mean and what does that look like? Well, the first thing Paul says that it looks like is that it looks like Christ dwelling in our hearts through faith. Now, what we know from the first two chapters of Ephesians is that if God has saved us, uh, he's united us to Jesus. Jesus already does live in our hearts through his spirit. 
And so Paul can't just be asking for the Ephesian church to be saved here. They're, they're already Christians. Instead, Paul is praying that Christ, Paul's not praying that Christ would move into their hearts for the first time. Paul is praying that Christ would make his home in their hearts, that he would settle down and begin to exercise more of his rule in their lives. I've heard it illustrated using the process of flipping a house. Think about if you bought a house that you were going to live in that needed to be flipped, because this house is an absolute mess. It's got uh, trash everywhere. There's tons of things that are broken. There's holes in the walls. Everything's cracked and peeling uh, and old. And so if that was the house that you bought, what would you do? You'd get to work flipping the house. Right, you'd start taking out all the trash. You'd start getting rid of what was old and broken. You'd replace it with what was new. You'd repaint the walls. You'd fix what was broken. You would make it your home. You would make it your place to live. You would not leave it in the same condition and mess that you found it in. You would exercise everything in your power to make that, that place your home and to make it a fit place to live for you. That's what Paul is praying that Christ would do in our hearts, that he would continue the work of cleaning up and cleaning out what is sinful, that he would continue the work of making his home in our hearts, that he would exercise his power so that more and more our hearts would be governed by his rule and his lordship. And Paul says here that this happens through faith. As we grow in our trust of Jesus and his goodness towards us, We start to give him more areas of our lives and say, Jesus, I trust you with my money. I trust you with this relationship. I trust you with my job. I trust you with my future. I am not Lord of my life. You are Lord of my life. As we grow in our trust of Jesus, he begins to exercise more and more lordship in our hearts. He begins to make our hearts increasingly his home. And so if this happens through faith, what will increase our faith in Jesus? What will make us trust him more so that more and more he comes to make a home in our hearts? Well, our faith increases as we look at Jesus and his love. This is why Paul prays in verse 17 that we would be rooted and grounded in God's love. Paul uses two metaphors here, uh, rooted and organic. It's a gardening metaphor. To be rooted in God's love means that God's love is your source of life and nourishment. It's the soil you're drawing your strength from, just like the roots of a tree get their life from the soil they're planted in. To be rooted in love means you're constantly drawing strength to live from God's love for you. God's love is just the air that you breathe. It's the atmosphere that pervades your life and pervades your days. Grounded is a building metaphor. To be grounded in God's love means that God's love is your foundation. God's love is where you're getting your stability. God's love is what you're building your life on. It's the anchor you cling to when the waves of life have kicked up. And when we are rooted and grounded in God's love, Christ will be more and more making his home in our hearts. And so Paul continues to pray that we would grasp God's love for us as he goes on in this passage. He prays next that we would have strength to comprehend what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. And that's an interesting phrase, isn't it? How do you know something that surpasses knowledge? What is Paul praying for here? 
Well, Paul is praying that we would know the truths of the gospel, not just in an intellectual way, but in an experiential way, that we would experience the breadth and length and height and depth of God's love for us. He's praying that God's love would become real to us. Paul is praying that we would be strengthened with God's power to be able to comprehend just how much God loves us. I've used this illustration from Jonathan Edwards pretty often because I I think it's just really helpful, but he talks about the difference between uh, knowing that honey is sweet, knowing the fact that honey is sweet, and actually tasting the sweetness of honey on your tongue. Now, both of those are forms of knowledge. You can really know the fact and the truth that honey is sweet, but it's a much different and deeper form of knowledge to actually taste the sweetness of honey on your tongue and know in your experience and experience the fact that honey is sweet. This is why Edwards says God is glorified not only by his glories being seen, but by its being rejoiced in. When those that see it delight in it, God is more glorified than if they only see it. He's saying God doesn't just desire that we see his glory and we see his love and be able to communicate the facts. Yeah, God is glorious. God is loving. No, God desires that we rejoice in his glory, delight in his love, that we cling to it and make it our own in our experience. But that's our problem, isn't it? So often the reason God's love isn't real to us is because God's love is just a fact to us. It is just kind of an abstract concept that we know. And as long as God's love is just a fact to you, just an abstract concept that you know, as long as all you're able to say is, yeah, of course I know God is loving. Of course I know God loves me. You're never going to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Look, I know that Bill Gates is rich. I know that man has just a ton of money. But that's just a fact I know. It's just abstract knowledge. I've never benefited from Bill Gates' riches. I've never experienced the fact that Bill Gates is rich. And and Paul knows the same thing can happen to us with God's love. and, And so he heads that off in verse 19 by using a specific phrase here. He prays, that we would know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Christ's love makes God's love concrete, tangible, touchable, seeable. How can you know the love of God in a way that surpasses knowledge? By seeing the way that God has loved you in Jesus. I mean, go back to verse 18. Paul prays that we would know the breadth of God's love. How wide is God's love? God's love is wide enough to pay for and accept anyone in the entire world. Jew, Gentile, African, European, American, Asian, prostitutes, tax collectors, sinners, religious Pharisees. God's love is able to spread wide enough and far enough to bring in anyone who will repent of their sins and believe in Him. No matter how much they've sinned no matter how much of a mess they've made of their lives, or no matter how prideful they've been in thinking that their morally clean religious lives have earned them favor with God. God's love is wide enough to bring anyone and everyone in, and the reason why is because of what Psalm 103 says. Psalm 103 verse 12 says, As far as the east is from the west, so far does God remove our transgressions from us. God's love is wide enough to embrace anyone who will repent and believe. How? How can God do that? 
Because on the cross, Jesus absorbs and pays for the penalty for our sins in full so that they can be dealt with and done away with forever. He absorbs and pays for everything that stands in the way of a relationship with God so that we could be fully forgiven of all of it so that as far as the east is from the west, so far would God remove our transgressions from us so that we would never face judgment for them again. The wonder of the wideness of God's love is that it's wide enough to embrace even you and me. We were the ones who were too far gone. We were the ones who had sinned too much. We were the ones who were too stuck in our pride and rebellion to come to God. But even when we were dead in our sins, God's love overcame our deadness and our sin and our rebellion and forgave even us through the cross. The wonder of the wideness of God's love is that it's wide enough to embrace even you. God's love is wide. It's also long. Paul prays we would know the length of God's love. How long is God's love? Well, what has Paul already told us in the book of Ephesians in chapter 1? In chapter 1, he said that God predestined us in love before the foundation of the world. And so how long is God's love for us? It's eternally long. There has never been a start date to God's love. God has eternally loved us. He eternally chose us in Jesus and predestined us for salvation. And where do you see the length of God's love? You see it in Jesus. Because God has eternally loved us, Jesus came as a man in time and came and lived the perfect life of faithfulness that you and I have not lived died the death for our sins that we deserve to die, and rose from the dead to conquer them and give us life forever. God loved us long enough in the past to predestine us for salvation and then accomplish our salvation before we ever loved Him. Even when you wanted nothing to do with Him, He was still loving and pursuing you. And the good news about this God's love is not just a past reality. It's not even just a present reality. It's a future reality as well. Philippians 1.6 says that God will not fail. He will complete the good work He began in us. He will not quit in, on us. He will not fail to bring us all the way back home to Himself, free from sin forever. God's love is long enough to cover us from beginning to end, and we see it in Jesus that he gives himself up for us on the cross to accomplish God's plan of salvation. God's love is wide. It's long. It's also high. Paul prays that we would know the heights of God's love. How high is God's love? Well, Ephesians 2 tells us that it's high enough to bring us into heaven. It says that, that all of us who have repented of our sins, who have trusted in Jesus, those who God has made alive, that God has raised us up and seated us with Jesus in the heavenly places right now. God's love has exalted us. It's lifted us up where we only deserve to sit in the dust, to sit under the judgment of God's wrath for our sins. We instead forever get to sit with Jesus in heaven. I love the way John Owen puts it. He's from the 1600s, so I'm going to modernize and paraphrase some of his language. But he puts it like this. He says, We cannot love grace into a child, nor mercy into a friend. We cannot love them into heaven, 
though it may be the great desire of our soul. It was love that made Abraham cry to God, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. But it wasn't to be. But now the love of Christ, being the love of God, is powerful and fruitful in producing all the good things that God wills towards his beloved. God loves life, grace, and holiness into us. He loves us also into covenant. He loves us into heaven. God's love is high enough to love you into a relationship with him, to love you uh, from death into life, to love grace and life into you so that you live a new life, to love you all the way into heaven. And we see his love on display in Jesus being willing to descend to the depths of the cross and the grave so that he could lift us back up with him to heaven. God's love is wide. It's long. It's high. And then finally what Paul prays for next is that we would know the depths of God's love. How deep is God's love? Philippians 2 tells us that Jesus, even though he shares equality with God, did not consider his equality with God something that would make him too good to come and save us. Instead, he humbled himself and took on our humanity and became a man to come and save us. And when he became a man and came to earth, he did not come uh, in honor and, and, and royalty. He came uh, he was treated with, uh, he was misunderstood, he was mocked, he was poor, he was homeless, and he ended his life in utter shame. He was put to death in the most shameful and humiliating way imaginable, death on a cross. Not only was he just put to a shameful death on the cross, he bore God's judgment for sins he didn't even commit for our sins so that we would not have to. We see the depths of God's love in the fact that Jesus was willing to descend and go into the depths of suffering and God's judgment and the grave because of how much he loves us and how deep his love is for us. So here's what the truth of the gospel brings. God's love is so wide and long and high and deep, that for those who repent of their sins and trust in Jesus, you can know the freedom of having your sins fully and forever forgiven. Look, if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, if you've not repented of your sins and turned to Jesus in trust and faith, I just need you to know you are right now standing on the outside of God's love and God's life and God's salvation. You will not know or experience God's love if you remain and you continue in your rebellion. But the good news of the gospel is that God has done the work to save you so that if you will repent of your sins and repent of your rebellion against Jesus' lordship and put your trust in what Jesus has done to save you, God will save you. And you can have all of your sins, past, present, and future, paid for in full eternally. You can have Jesus's righteousness given to you as a free gift so that you're forever acceptable in God's sight. You can be reconciled to God and made alive. You can be brought from dead in your sins to alive in Jesus and given a new heart that loves God and wants to obey him. You can be reconciled. You can know and live for God. You can have a relationship with God because God's love it conquers our sins. It conquers our rebellion. 
It conquers our dead hearts. It conquers our idolatry. It conquers our rejection and unbelief so that we can know the joy and love of really knowing God, of having God the Father as our Father, of being united to Jesus as our brother, and having the Spirit of God come and live inside of us so that God himself would make his home in us. That's the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that God wants us to know. And the way we come to know it is by asking for it and by getting our eyes and our hearts on the good news of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection for us so that we might begin not just to see it, but to taste it. Not just to see it, but to rejoice in it and delight in it and cling to it. This is why Paul says at the end of verse 19 that when we come to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, when we have the strength to comprehend God's love for us, that we'll be filled with all the fullness of God. Paul uses a very similar phrase in chapter 4, verse 13, and there he's talking about spiritual maturity. And so to be filled with all the fullness of God means that we're growing in spiritual maturity. We're growing more and more to love Jesus and look like Jesus. Jesus is conquering more and more of our hearts, and Paul is saying that looks like coming to more deeply know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. This is what Paul is is saying in this passage. He prays for strength to comprehend. As he prays to be strengthened in our inner being, the way we're strengthened is through coming to know God's love for us. Paul is saying that growth in the Christian life is growing in comprehending just how much God loves you. That's what it means to be strengthened in your inner being with power. God's love is a power because when you grow in grasping God's love for you, that begins to radiate out into your life and into your experience. You stop living for yourself. You start living for God and for others. The truths of the gospel that you used to be able to affirm on paper are now becoming lived realities in your life, and you're trusting Jesus because of those. And look again, at the end of the day, we can't make that happen on our own. We can put ourselves in the position to receive it, and we'll talk more about that in just a little bit, but we can't make ourselves come to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Only God can do that in us. We need God's help, and that's why we should pray for this. And here's the good news that the passage gives us. Not only should we pray that God would make the gospel real to us, we should pray because God is able to make the gospel real to us. Look again at verse 20 and 21 with me. He says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. So after his prayer, Paul moves into this doxology where he gives praise to God. And where does his confidence lie that God really can make the gospel real to us? He really can strengthen us in our inner being with power. His confidence lies in the fact that God is able. God is able. God can do it. And notice what he says here. He doesn't just say God is able. He says God's able to do far more. And he doesn't just say say God's able to do far more. He says God's able to do far more abundantly, which means above and beyond And he doesn't just say God's able to do far more abundantly. He says God is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. 
And how often do you come to a situation or a circumstance in your life where you're at the end of your rope and the end of your ingenuity, and you're like, I can't think my way out of this. I can't strategize my way out of this, and I don't even know what to pray for here. I don't even know what the right way forward and the right way out would look like. So, in, so often we come to the end of our abilities and our strength and our intelligence And again, we don't even know what to pray for. We don't even know the right way out or the right way forward. The good news this passage is telling us is that when we hit a wall and a ceiling, God does not. God is not limited by our imaginations or what we can think to ask. No, God is able to do far more abundantly than all that we could ask or think. Kids, this would be like you Uh, asking your parents if they would take you out to get ice cream after dinner tonight. And they say, instead of doing that, why don't we just go to Disney World for the week instead? Now listen, you didn't even think to ask that, right? That wasn't even on your radar. You didn't even know that was possible. You just wanted some ice cream for dessert. But your parents went far above and beyond anything that you could ask or think. That's why we pray for this, because God is able. God is powerful. God is not just sitting up in heaven wishing he could do something, but you know at the end of the day his hands are tied. God does not just mean well, and he does not just wish us good luck. No, God is able. God is able to do far more abundantly than all we could ask or think. And Paul says because God is able, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Glory means uh, weight and worth and value. And, And so we don't make God glorious. God is glorious already. For us to give God glory, to glorify God means to give him the proper weight and worth and value that he deserves in our lives. And so for Paul to say, to God be glory in the church, he's praying and saying that God should be getting the proper weight and worth in our church. He's saying that our local church should be displaying God's glory, God's beauty and worth, that God should be the one getting the glory in our church. This doxology, Paul's expression of praise to God here, it's summing up the first three chapters of Ephesians. Paul's praying and he's Paul's praising God because of all that he has said. God has done and is able to do through the gospel. And so thinking specifically of the church, what has Ephesians said that God has done? God's reconciled us to one another. God has made peace. God's created one new man in place of the two. He's made us one body with one another. He's made us the temple where he lives on earth. He's made us members of the same kingdom, and he's chosen to display his wisdom to the angels and to the heavenly beings through the local church. God is able to and has done all of that. And so how can we give him glory in our lives together as a local church? By living into these realities together. By actually living as one new man in place of the two. We display God's wisdom by loving and caring for and committing to and serving and sacrificing for one another in a way that just confounds the world in a way that they just cannot make sense of. So let me give you just a practical way to do that. Do you have any relationships here in the church that could be described as what someone has called 
Jesus-only relationships. Now, what I mean by that is relationships where the only real reason that you, you two are in a relationship, that you're friends with one another, is because Jesus has risen from the dead and has put you together in the same local church. And if Jesus had not risen from the dead and put you together in the same local church, you would not spend time with this person. Now, look, I'm not saying that that uh, is going to be all of your relationships in the church. I'm not even saying that needs to be the majority of your friendships here in the local church. But do you have any of these relationships here? Like for example, it, it really should not seem strange to us to have people in their 20s spending a Friday night with empty nesters who are not part of their biological family. Uh, like, to, that, to the world, that makes absolutely no sense. To the church, that makes all the sense in the world because we have both been saved by Jesus and put together in the same local church to help one another follow him. It should not seem strange to us to see somebody who is single, who has a deep relationship with a married couple and has, uh, spends time with them and is folded into the rhythms of each other's lives as if they're a part of their family, because in Jesus they really are a part of each other's family. It should not seem strange to us to see two people in the church who can in no way help advance each other's careers getting lunch together and spending time together and reading the Bible with each other and praying for each other and discipling one another and holding one another accountable. If another church member here that you didn't really know came up to you after the service was over this morning and asked you to come over for dinner this week, would you be open to doing that? I want to encourage you, you should be. You've committed to help that person follow Jesus, and they've committed the same to you. This is one of the reasons that meaningful membership in the local church is so important, because only being friends with people we would already naturally be friends with, even if Jesus had never risen from the dead, that does not show the world anything different. Everybody is friends with people they already would naturally be friends with, that it's easy to be friends with, especially when those relationships don't come with any commitment and accountability. But committing to one another in membership in the local church opens us up to relationships with people who are not like us, yet are committed to loving us and helping us be accountable to following Jesus. And that shows God's power to bring diverse people together and unite them around Jesus. So one way we display God's glory together in the church is by being deeply committed to one another and open to relationships that make no earthly sense. And so God should be getting glory in the church. Paul prays next that God would get glory in Christ Jesus, uh, to God be the glory in Christ Jesus. Paul is praying and praising and saying that Je praying that Jesus' sacrifice would get the proper weight that it deserves in our hearts so that we might love and trust and rejoice in God for what he's done for us in Jesus. As we glorify God for his grace to us in Jesus, we join in with the church throughout all generations, with God's people throughout all generations who have been saved to praise his name and glorify him together. And so both Paul's prayer and his outburst of praise here at the end of chapter 3 are all leading towards the same thought. Paul is asking that God would get the glory in our lives and in us as a church through strengthening us to better know and grasp just how much he loves us. 
And, and he's praying for that because, again, at the end of the day, you and I cannot make that happen on our own. But that doesn't mean that there's nothing that we're called to do in this. If you've uh, ever been to the water park, then maybe you've seen uh, that huge bucket that will fill up and fill up and fill up with water until eventually it tips over and spills all the water out on everybody who's below the bucket. Now, what's usually true about that bucket? Can you make that bucket tip over on your own? Usually not, right? There's no button you can press. There's no lever for you to pull. You're at the mercy of the bucket and when it wants to tip over. But if you're under the bucket when the bucket tips over and spills the water out, what happens to you? You get soaking wet, right? If you're not under the bucket when the water tips over, what happens to you? You stay dry. Right, well, in the same way, we can't make the bucket tip over and dump God's grace on us. God's grace is not something that's in our power and in our control. It's God's prerogative. But what we can do is put ourselves in the place. We can stand under the bucket so that when God does choose to pour out his grace, we'll be in the spot to get hit with it. And so how do you do that? What does that look like? Let me just give you a few ways. One, you read the Bible. God addresses us. He speaks to us. He relates to us, and he reveals himself to us through his word. If you want to know God, you do it through his word. So many of us want to have this deep experience of God's grace, like what Paul is talking about here in Ephesians 3, but we don't want to study and know uh, the truths that would give us that experience. But look, you've got to know the truths first before you can know them in a way that surpasses knowledge. Why do you think Paul would spend the first three chapters of Ephesians just rehearsing and laying out the truths of the gospel if he didn't believe that? And so if you want to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, get in the place where God has told you about his love in his word. Two, you, you meditate. You meditate on what you read and what you hear preached and taught. All that means is that you take what you read and what you hear preached or taught and you think about it. You turn it over in your mind. You chew on it. You keep wrestling with it and thinking about how it applies to your life and how you should live in light of it. You don't just read it or listen to it and then move on. Meditation helps us internalize God's word to us. And then three, after you read or you hear and you meditate, you pray. You pray God's word back to him. What you've read on and chewed on and thought about, in pr you, you bring it back to God in prayer. You ask God to make it real to your heart. Look, so often we don't have the experience that, that Paul is praying for here because we just don't ask for it. We settle. We're comfortable with how much of God we've got right now. Yeah, maybe in the future we'd love to have a deeper relationship with him, but we've got more important things to worry about. I'm, I'm good with enough, as much of God as I've got right now. Thank you very much. But the heart cry of every true Christian is, God, I want to know you. Please reveal yourself to me. Give me more of yourself. The heart longing of every true Christian is an angst for more of God, a, a holy discontentment to want more of God than you have right now. And listen, God loves to give more of himself to his children. He's not stingy. He will, he will reveal himself to you 
So ask him for it. Ask him for it in prayer. And then four, talk about this with other church members. Did you see in verse 18, when Paul is praying that we would have the strength to comprehend God's love, he prays that we would have the strength to comprehend God's love with all the saints, with God's people. You need others to help you experience God's grace. Here's the truth. You are always going to hit a ceiling on your knowledge and your experience of God if you try to do everything by yourself. God has not designed it to be that way for you or for anybody else. We live out our Christian lives in the church with one another, encouraging one another and helping each other see Jesus. So if you go out to lunch with someone today, here's something to ask each other. Ask, what's one way you've seen God's grace in your life lately? Where's an area where you feel like the gospel is becoming more real to you? Where, what's an area where you feel like you are learning to trust Jesus more and more and rest in his love for you? If you get together with somebody here this week, ask each other these questions. Let's encourage one another in the gospel because we want the strength to comprehend God's love with all the saints. And so let me encourage you, get under the bucket. God loves to dump out his grace on his children, so get in the place to receive it. Get in his word, hear it preached, and don't just move on with your day. Meditate on his word. Pray and encourage one another with the good news. The love of Christ surpasses knowledge. God wants his love to be a power that strengthens us in our inner beings. And God is able to give it to us. He's able to go far above all that we could ask or think. And this passage is calling us to ask him for it. And so let's do that. Let's ask him for it. And let's ask him for it now. God, we do want to just unite with Paul here in this prayer and ask that according to the riches of your glory, you would grant us to be strengthened with power in our inner beings. God, please help us to know and grasp and have strength to comprehend what is the breadth and length and height and depth of your love. Would you give us the grace to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge? God, I pray your love would begin to even now be a power in our lives that would change the way we see ourselves, that would change what we love and what we trust in, that we would more and more trust you, Jesus. Would you make your home in our hearts would you open up our eyes to see your love so that we might grow in our trust of you? God, I, I pray and I ask that you would do what Paul is praying for in this passage in our lives and in, in our hearts. God, do it in us as a local church. Would you make us a local church that, that more and more displays your glory and your wisdom to the watching world? God, would you make us a people who are deeply committed to one another because you have loved us? Would you make us a people that are rooted and grounded in your love for us and not in any other soil or any other foundation? God, you're far more able to do, you're able to do far more abundantly than anything we could ask or think even in this moment. So would you do it? I pray that you would be pleased to do so in your name. Amen.